Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you, and together we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today, we are continuing the novel Around the World in 80 Days, written by Jules Verne. It was published in 1872 and is one of Verne's best-known works. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes, I recommend you start with those. Chapter 20, in which Fix comes face to face with Phileas Fogg. While these events were passing at the Opium House, Mr. Fogg, unconscious of the danger he was in of losing the steamer, was quietly escorting Aouda about the streets of the English Quarter, making the necessary purchases for the long voyage before them. It was all very well for an Englishman like Mr. Fogg to make the tour of the world with a carpet bag. A lady could not be expected to travel comfortably under such conditions. He acquitted his task with characteristic serenity, and invariably replied to the remonstrances of his fair companion, who was confused by his patience and generosity. It is in the interest of my journey, a part of my program. The purchases made, they returned to the hotel, where they dined at a sumptuously served table d'hote, after which Ayuda, shaking hands with her protector after the English fashion, retired to her room for rest. Mr. Fogg absorbed himself throughout the evening in the perusal of the Times and illustrated London news. He had been capable of being astonished at anything. It would have been not to see his servant return at bedtime. But knowing that the steamer was not to leave for Yokohama until the next morning, he did not disturb himself about the matter. When Passepartout did not appear the next morning to answer his master's bell, Mr. Fogg, not betraying the least vexation, contented himself with taking his carpet-bag, calling Aouda, and sending for a palanquin. It was then eight o'clock. At half-past nine, it being then high tide, the Carnatic would leave the harbour. Mr. Fogg and Aouda got into the palanquin, their luggage being brought after on a wheelbarrow, and half an hour later stepped upon the quay whence they were to embark. Mr. Fogg then learned that the Carnatic had sailed the evening before. He had expected to find not only the steamer, but his domestic, and was forced to give up both. But no sign of disappointment appeared on his face, and he merely remarked to Ayuda, It is an accident, madame, nothing more. At this moment, a man who had been observing him attentively approached. It was Fix, who, bowing, addressed Mr. Fogg. Were you not, like me, sir, a passenger by the Rangoon which arrived yesterday? I was, sir, replied Mr. Fogg coldly, but I have not the honour. 
Pardon me, I thought I should find your servant here. Do you know where he is, sir? asked Ayuda anxiously. What? responded Fix, feigning surprise. Is he not with you? No, said Ayuda. He has not made his appearance since yesterday. Could he have gone on board the Carnatic without us? Without you, madame? answered the detective. Excuse me, did you intend to sail in the Carnatic? Yes, sir. So did I, madame, and I am excessively disappointed. The Carnatic, its repairs being completed, left Hong Kong twelve hours before the stated time, without any notice being given, and we must now wait a week for another steamer. As he said, a week, Fix felt his heart leap for joy. Fogg detained at Hong Kong for a week. There would be time for the warrant to arrive, and fortune, at last, favoured the representative of the law. His horror may be imagined when he heard Mr. Fogg say in his placid voice, But there are other vessels besides the Carnatic, it seems to me, in the harbour of Hong Kong. And, offering his arm to Ayuda, he directed his steps toward the docks in search of some craft about to start. Fix, stupefied, followed. It seemed as if he were attached to Mr. Fogg by an invisible thread. Chance, however, appeared really to have abandoned the man it had hitherto served so well. For three hours, Phileas Fogg wandered about the docks with the determination, if necessary, to charter a vessel to carry him to Yokohama. But he could only find vessels which were loading or unloading, and which could not, therefore, set sail. Fix began to hope again. But Mr. Fogg, far from being discouraged, was continuing his search resolved not to stop if he had to resort to Macau, when he was accosted by a sailor on one of the wharves. "'Is your honour looking for a boat?' "'Have you a boat ready to sail?' "'Yes, your honour, a pilot boat. Number 43, the best in the harbour. "'Does she go fast?' "'Between eight and nine knots the hour. Will you look at her?' "'Yes.' "'Your honour will be satisfied with her. Is it for a sea excursion?' No, for a voyage. A voyage? Yes, will you agree to take me to Yokohama? The sailor leaned on the railing, opened his eyes wide, and said, Is your honor joking? No, I have missed the Carnatic, and I must get to Yokohama by the 14th at the latest, to take the boat for San Francisco. Oh, I'm sorry, said the sailor, but it's impossible. I offer you a hundred pounds per day, and an additional reward of two hundred pounds if I reach Yokohama in time. Are you in earnest? Very much so. The pilot walked away a little distance, and gazed out to the sea, evidently struggling between the anxiety to gain a large sum and the fear of entering so far. Fix was in mortal suspense. Mr. Fogg turned to Ayuda and asked her, you would not be afraid, would you, madam? Not with you, Mr. Fogg, was her answer. The pilot now returned, shuffling his hat in his hands. Well, pilot, said Mr. Fogg. Well, your honor, replied he, I, I could not risk myself, my, my men, or my little boat of scarcely twenty tons on so long a voyage at this time of year. Besides, we could not reach Yokohama in time, for it is sixteen hundred and sixty miles from Hong Kong. Only sixteen hundred, said Mr. Fogg. It's the same thing. Fix breathed more freely. 
But, added the pilot, it, it might be arranged another way. Fix ceased to breathe at all. How? asked Mr. Fogg. By going to Nagasaki, at the extreme south of Japan, or even to Shanghai, which is only 800 miles from here. In going to Shanghai, we should not be forced to sail wide of the Chinese coast, which would be a great advantage, as the currents run northward and would aid us. Pilot, said Mr. Fogg, I must take the American steamer at Yokohama, not at Shanghai or Nagasaki. Why not? returned the pilot. The San Francisco steamer does not start from Yokohama. It puts in at Yokohama and Nagasaki, but it starts from Shanghai. You are sure of that? Perfectly. And when does the boat leave Shanghai? On the 11th, at 7 in the evening. We have, therefore, four days before us, that is, 96 hours, and in that time, if we had good luck and a southwest wind, and the sea was calm, we could make those 800 miles to Shanghai. And you could go... In an hour, as soon as provisions could be got on board and the sails put up. It is a bargain. Are you the master of the boat? Yes, John Bunsby, master of the tankadier. Would you like some earnest money? Uh, if it would not put your honour out... Um... Here are two hundred pounds on account, sir, added Phileas Fogg, turning to Fix. If you would like to take advantage... Thank you, sir. I was about to ask the favour. Very well. In half an hour we shall go on board. But poor Passepartout, urged Diuda, who was much disturbed by the servant's disappearance. I shall do all I can to find him, replied Phileas Fogg. While Fix, in a feverish, nervous state, repaired to the pilot boat, the others directed their course to the police station at Hong Kong. Phileas Fogg there gave Passepartout's description, and left a sum of money to be spent in the search for him. The same formalities having been gone through at the French consulate, and the Planquin having stopped at the hotel for the luggage, which had been sent back there, they returned to the wharf. It was now three o'clock, and pilot boat number 43, with its crew on board, and its provisions stored away, was ready for departure. The Tankadier was a neat little craft of twenty tons, as gracefully built as if she were a racing yacht. Her shining copper sheathing, her galvanized ironwork, her deck, white as ivory, betrayed the pride taken by John Bunsby in making her presentable. Her two masts leaned a trifle backward. She carried brigantine, foresail, storm jib, and standing jib, and was well rigged for running before the wind, and she seemed capable of brisk speed, which, indeed, she had already proved by gaining several prizes in pilot boat races. The crew of the Tankadier was composed of John Bunsby, the master, and four hardy mariners, who were familiar with the Chinese seas. John Bunsby himself, a man of forty-five or thereabouts, vigorous, sunburnt, with a sprightly expression of the eye, and energetic and self-reliant countenance, would have inspired the confidence in the most timid. Phileas Fogg and Iuda went on board, where they found Fix already installed. Below deck was a square cabin, of which the walls bulged out in the form of cots, above a circular divan. In the centre was a table provided with a swinging lamp. The accommodation was confined, but neat. "'I am sorry to have nothing better to offer you,' said Mr. Fogg to Fix, who bowed without responding. The detective had a feeling akin to humiliation in profiting by the kindness of Mr. Fogg. It's certain, thought he, though rascal as he is, he is a polite one. 
The sails and the English flag were hoisted at ten minutes past three. Mr. Fogg and Iuda, who were seated on deck, cast a last glance at the quay in the hope of espying Passepartout. Fix was not without his fears, lest chance should direct the steps of the unfortunate servant, whom he had so badly treated in this direction. In which case, an explanation the reverse of satisfactory to the detective must have ensued. But the Frenchman did not appear, and, without doubt, was still lying under the stupefying influence of the opium. John Bunsby, master, at length gave the order to start, and the tankadier, taking the wind under her brigantine, foresail, and standing jib, bounded briskly forward over the waves. Chapter 21 In which the master of the tankadier runs great risk of losing a reward of two hundred pounds. This voyage of eight hundred miles was a perilous venture on a craft of twenty tons, and at that season of the year. The Chinese seas are usually boisterous, subject to terrible gales of wind, and especially during the equinoxes, and it was now early November. It would clearly have been to the master's advantage to carry his passengers to Yokohama, since he was paid a certain sum per day, but he would have been rash to attempt such a voyage and it was imprudent even to attempt to reach Shanghai. But John Bunsby believed in the tankadier, which rode on the waves like a seagull, and perhaps he was not wrong. Late in the day, they passed through the capricious channels of Hong Kong, and the tankadier, impelled by favorable winds, conducted herself admirably. "'I do not need, pilot,' said Phileas Fogg, when they got into the open sea, "'to advise you to use all possible speed.' Trust me, Your Honor, we are carrying all the sail the wind will let us. The poles would add nothing, and are only used when we are going into port. It is your trade, not mine, pilot, and I confide in you. Phileas Fogg, with body erect and legs wide apart, standing like a sailor, gazed without staggering at the swelling waters. The young woman, who was seated aft, was profoundly affected as she looked out upon the ocean, darkening now with the twilight on which she had ventured in so frail a vessel. Above her head rustled the white sails, which seemed like great white wings. The boat, carried forward by the wind, seemed to be flying in the air. Night came. The moon was entering her first quarter, and her insufficient light would soon die out in the mist on the horizon. Clouds were rising from the east, and already overcast a part of the heavens. The pilot had hung out his lights, which was very necessary in these seas crowded with vessels bound landward, for collisions were not uncommon occurrences, and at the speed she was going, the least shock would shatter the gallant little craft. Fix, seated in the bow, gave himself up to meditation. He kept apart from his fellow travellers, knowing Mr. Fogg's taciturn tastes. Besides, he did not quite like to talk to the man whose favours he had accepted. He was thinking, too, of the future. It seemed certain that m it seemed certain that Fogg would not stop at Yokohama, but would at once take the boat for San Francisco. And the vast extent of America would ensure him impunity and safety. 
Fogg's plan appeared to him the simplest in the world. Instead of sailing directly from England to the United States, like a common villain, he had traversed three-quarters of the globe so as to gain the American continent more surely. And there, after throwing the police off his track, he would quietly enjoy himself with the fortune stolen from the bank. But once in the United States, what should he, Fix, do? Should he abandon this man? No, a hundred times no. Until he had secured his extradition, he would not lose sight of him for an hour. It was his duty, and he would fulfill it to the end. At all events, there was one thing to be thankful for. Passepartout was not with his master, and it was above all important, after the confidences Fix had imparted to him, that the servant should never have speech with his master. Phileas Fogg was also thinking of Passepartout, who had so strangely disappeared. Looking at the matter from every point of view, it did not seem to him impossible that, by some mistake, the man might have embarked on the Carnatic at the last moment. And this was also Ayuda's opinion, who regretted very much the loss of the worthy fellow to whom she owed so much. They might then find him at Yokohama, for if the Carnatic was carrying him thither, it would be easy to ascertain if he had been on board. A brisk breeze arose about ten o'clock, but though it might have been prudent to take in a reef, the pilot, after carefully examining the heavens, let the craft remain rigged as before. The tankadier bore sail admirably, as she drew a great deal of water, and everything was prepared for high speed in case of a gale. Mr. Fogg and Ayuda descended into the cabin at midnight, having been already preceded by Fix, who had lain down on one of the cots. The pilot and crew remained on deck all night. At sunrise the next day, which was the 8th of November, the boat had made more than 100 miles. The log indicated a mean speed of between 8 and 9 miles. The tankadier still carried all sail and was accomplishing her greatest capacity of speed. If the wind held as it was, the chances would be in her favour. During the day, she kept along the coast, where the currents were favourable. The coast, irregular in profile, and visible sometimes across the clearings, was at most five miles distant. The sea was less boisterous, since the wind had come off land, a fortunate circumstance for the boat, which would suffer owing to its small tonnage by a heavy surge on the sea. The breeze subsided a little towards noon, and set in from the southwest. The pilot put up his poles, but took them down again within two hours, as the wind freshened up anew. Mr. Fogg and Ayuda, happily unaffected by the roughness of the sea, ate with a good appetite. Fix, being invited to share their repast, which he accepted with secret chagrin. To travel at this man's expense and live upon his provisions was not palatable to him, Still, he was obliged to eat, and so he ate. When the meal was over, he took Mr. Fogg apart and said, Sir, this sir scorched his lips, and he had to control himself to avoid collaring this gentleman. Sir, you have been very kind to give me a passage on this boat, but though my means will not admit of my expending them as freely as you, I must ask to pay my share. Let us not speak of that, sir replied Mr. Fogg. But, but if I insist... No, sir, repeated Mr. Fogg, in a tone which did not admit of a reply. 
This enters into my general expenses. Fix, as he bowed, had a stifled feeling, and going forward where he ensconced himself did not open his mouth for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, they were progressing famously, and John Bunsby was in high hope. He several times assured Mr. Fogg that they would reach Shanghai in time, to which that gentleman responded that he counted upon it. The crew set to work in good earnest, inspired by the reward to be gained. There was not a sheet which was not tightened, not a sail which was not vigorously hoisted, not a lurch could be charged to the man at the helm. They worked as desperately as if they were contesting in a royal yacht regatta. By evening, the log showed that 220 miles had been accomplished from Hong Kong, and Mr. Fogg might hope that he would be able to reach Yokohama without recording any delay in his journal, in which case the many misadventures which had overtaken him since he left London would not seriously affect his journey. The Tankadier entered the Straits of Fokin, which separate the islands of Formosa from the Chinese coast, in the small hours of the night and crossed the Tropic of Cancer. The sea was very rough in the straits, full of eddies formed by the counter-currents, and the chopping waves broke her course, whilst it became very difficult to stand on deck. At daybreak, the wind began to blow hard again, and the heavens seemed to predict a gale. The barometer announced a speedy change, the mercury rising and falling capriciously. The sea also, in the southeast, raised long surges which indicated a tempest. The sun had set the evening before in a red mist in the midst of the phosphorescent scintillations of the ocean. John Bunsby long examined the threatening aspect of the heavens, muttering indistinctly between his teeth. At last he said in a low voice to Mr. Fogg, "'Shall I speak out to your honour?' "'Of course.' "'Well, we are going to have a squall. "'Is the wind north or south?' asked Mr. Fogg quietly. "'South. Look, a typhoon is coming up.' "'Glad it's a typhoon from the south, for it will carry us forward.' "'Oh, if you take it that way,' said John Bunsby, "'I've nothing more to say.' "'John Bunsby's suspicions were confirmed.' At a less advanced season of the year, the typhoon, according to a famous meteorologist, would have passed away like a luminous cascade of electric flame. But in the winter equinox, it was to be feared that it would burst upon them with great violence. The pilot took his precautions in advance. He reefed all sail. The pole masts were dispensed with. All hands went to forward bows. A single triangular sail of strong canvas was hoisted as a storm jib, so as to hold the wind from behind. Then they waited. John Bunsby had requested his passengers to go below, but this imprisonment in so narrow a space with little air and the boat bouncing in the gale was far from pleasant. Neither Mr. Fogg, Fix, nor Iuda consented to leave the deck. The storm of rain and wind descended upon them towards eight o'clock. With but its bit of sail, the tankadier was lifted like a feather by a wind, an idea of whose violence can scarcely be given. To compare her speed to four times that of a locomotive going on full steam would be below the truth. The boat scudded thus northward during the whole day, 
borne on by monstrous waves, preserving always, fortunately, a speed equal to theirs. Twenty times she seemed almost to be submerged by these mountains of water which rose behind her, but the adroit management of the pilot saved her. The passengers were often bathed in spray, but they submitted to it philosophically. Fix cursed it, no doubt, but Ayuda, with her eyes fastened upon her protector, whose coolness amazed her, showed herself worthy of him, and bravely weathered the storm. As for Phileas Fogg, it seemed just as if the typhoon were a part of his programme. Up to this time, the tankadier had always held her course to the north. But towards the evening, the wind, veering three-quarters, bore down from the northwest. The boat, now lying in the trough of the waves, shook and rolled terribly. The sea struck her with fearful violence. At night, the tempest increased in violence. John Bunsby saw the approach of darkness and the rising of the storm with dark misgivings. He thought a while, and then asked his crew if it was not time to slacken speed. After a consultation, he approached Mr. Fogg and said, I think, Your Honour, that we should do well to make for one of the ports on the coast. I think so, too. Ah, said the pilot, but which one? I know of but one, returned Mr. Fogg tranquilly, and that is Shanghai. The pilot, at first, did not seem to comprehend. He could scarcely realize so much determination and tenacity. Then he cried, Well, yes, your honor is right. To Shanghai. So the tankadier kept steadily on her northward track. The night was really terrible. It would be a miracle if the craft did not founder. Twice, it could have been all over with her if the crew had not been constantly on the watch. Ayuda was exhausted, but did not utter a complaint. More than once, Mr. Fogg rushed to protect her from the violence of the waves. Day reappeared. The tempest still raged with undiminished fury, but the wind now returned to the southeast. It was a favorable change, and the tankadier again bounded forward on this mountainous sea. Though the waves crossed each other and imparted shocks and countershocks, which would have crushed a craft less solidly built. From time to time, the coast was visible through the broken mist, but no vessel was in sight. The tankadier was alone upon the sea. There were some signs of calm at noon, and these became more distinct as the sun descended toward the horizon. The tempest had been as brief as terrific. The passengers, thoroughly exhausted, could now eat a little and take some repose. The night was comparatively quiet. Some of the sails were again hoisted, and the speed of the boat was very good. The next morning, at dawn, they espied the coast, and John Bunsby was able to assert that they were not one hundred miles from Shanghai. A hundred miles, and only one day to traverse them. That very evening, Mr. Fogg was due at Shanghai, if he did not wish to miss the steamer to Yokohama. Had there been no storm, during which several hours were lost, they would be at this moment within thirty miles of their destination. The wind grew decidedly calmer, and happily the sea fell with it. All sails were now hoisted, and at noon the tankadier was within forty miles of Shanghai. There remained yet six hours in which to accomplish that distance. All on board feared that it could not be done, and everyone, 
Phileas Fogg, no doubt accepted, felt his heart beat with impatience. The boat must keep up an average of nine miles an hour, and the wind was becoming calmer every moment. It was a capricious breeze coming from the coast, and after it passed the sea became smooth. Still, the tankadier was so light, and her fine sails caught the fickles of fears so well, that with the aid of the currents, John Bunsby found himself at six o'clock, not more than ten miles from the mouth of the Shanghai River. Shanghai itself is situated at least twelve miles up the stream. At seven, they were still three miles from Shanghai. The pilot swore an angry oath. The reward of two hundred pounds was evidently on the point of escaping him. He looked at Mr. Fogg. Mr. Fogg was perfectly tranquil, and yet his whole fortune was at this moment at stake. At this moment also, a long black funnel crowned with wreaths of smoke appeared at the edge of the waters. It was the American steamer, leaving for Yokohama at the appointed time. "'Confound her!' cried John Bunsby, pushing back the rudder with a desperate jerk. "'Signal her,' said Phileas Fogg quietly. A small brass cannon stood on the forward deck of the tankadier for making signals in the fogs. It was loaded to the muzzle, but just as the pilot was about to apply a red-hot coal to the touch hole, Mr. Fogg said, Hoist your flag! The flag was run up at half-mast, and this, being the signal of distress, it was hoped that the American steamer, perceiving it, would change her course a little so as to succor the pilot boat. Fire, said Mr. Fogg, and the booming of the little cannon resounded in the air. Chapter 22 In which Passepartout finds out that, even at the Antipodes, it is convenient to have some money in one's pocket. The Carnatic, setting sail from Hong Kong at half-past six on the 7th of November, directed her course at full steam towards Japan. She carried a large cargo and a well-filled cabin of passengers. Two staterooms in the rear were, however, unoccupied, those which had been engaged by Phileas Fogg. The next day, a passenger with a half-stupefied eye, staggering gait, and disordered hair was seen to emerge from the second cabin and to totter to a seat on deck. It was Passepartout, and what had happened to him was as follows. Shortly after Fix left the opium den, two waiters had lifted the unconscious Passepartout and had carried him to the bed reserved for the smokers. Three hours later, pursued even in his dreams by a fixed idea, the poor fellow awoke and struggled against the stupefying influence of the narcotic. The thought of a duty unfulfilled shook off his torpor, and he hurried from the abode of drunkenness. Staggering and holding himself up by keeping against the walls, falling down and creeping back up again, and irresistibly impelled by a kind of instinct, he kept crying out, The Carnatic! The Carnatic! The steamer lay puffing alongside the quay, on the point of starting. Passepartout had but few steps to go, and, rushing upon the plank, he crossed it and fell unconscious on the deck, just as the Carnatic was moving off. Several sailors, who were evidently accustomed to this sort of scene, carried the poor Frenchman down into the second cabin, and Passepartout did not wake until they were 150 miles away from China. 
Thus, he found himself the next morning on the deck of the Carnatic, and eagerly inhaling the exhilarating sea breeze. The pure air sobered him. He began to collect his sense, which he found a difficult task. But at last he recalled the events of the evening before, Fix's revelation and the opium house. It is evident, said he to himself, that I have been abominably drunk. What will Mr. Fogg say? At least I have not missed the steamer, which is the most important thing. Then, as Fix occurred to him, As for that rascal, I hope we are well rid of him, and that he has not dared, as he proposed, to follow us on board the Carnatic. A detective on the track of Mr. Fogg, accused of robbing the Bank of England. Ah! Mr. Fogg is no more a robber than I am a murderer. Should he divulge, fix his real errand to his master? Would it do to tell the part the detective was playing? Would it not be better to wait until Mr. Fogg reached London again, and then impart to him that an agent of the Metropolitan Police had been following him round the world, and have a good laugh over it? No doubt, at least, it was worth considering. The first thing to do was to find Mr. Fogg and apologize for his singular behavior. Passepartout got up and proceeded, as well as he could with the rolling of the steamer, to the afterdeck. He saw no one who resembled either his master or Aouda. Good, muttered he, Aouda has not got up yet, and Mr. Fogg has probably found some partners at whist. He descended to the saloon. Mr. Fogg was not there. Passepartout had only, however, to ask the purser the number of his master's stateroom. The purser replied that he did not know any passenger by the name of Fogg. I beg your pardon, said Passepartout persistently. He is a tall gentleman, quiet, not very talkative, and has with him a young lady. There is no young lady on board, interrupted the purser. Here is a list of the passengers. You may see for yourself. Passepartout scanned the list, but his master's name was not upon it. All at once an idea struck him. Ah, am I on the Carnatic? Yes. On On the way to Yokohama? Certainly. Passepartout had for an instant feared that he was on the wrong boat. But, though he was really on the Carnatic, his master was not there. He fell, thunderstruck, on a seat. He saw it all now. He remembered that the time of sailing had been changed, that he should have informed his master of that fact, and that he had not done so. It was his fault, then, that Mr. Fogg and Ayuda had missed the steamer. Yes, but it was still more the fault of the traitor who, in order to separate him from his master and detain the latter at Hong Kong, had inveigled him into getting drunk. He now saw the detective's trick, and at this moment Mr. Fogg was certainly ruined. His bet was lost, and he himself perhaps arrested and imprisoned. At this thought, Passepartout tore his hair. Ah, if Fix ever came within his reach, what a settling of accounts there would be. After his first depression, Passepartout became calmer, and began to study his situation. It was certainly not an enviable one. He found himself on the way to Japan, and what should he do when he got there? His pocket was empty, he had not a solitary shilling, not so much as a penny. His passage had fortunately been paid for in advance, and he had five or six days in which to decide upon his future course. He fell to at meals with an appetite, and ate for Mr. Fogg, Ayuda, and himself. He helped himself as generously as if Japan were a desert, where nothing to eat was to be looked for. 
at dawn on the 13th, the Carnatic entered the port of Yokohama. This is an important port of call in the Pacific, where all the mail steamers, and those carrying travelers between North America, China, Japan, and the Oriental Islands, put in. It is situated in the Bay of Yeddo, and at but a short distance from that second capital of the Japanese Empire, and the residence of the tycoon, the civil emperor, before the Mikado, the spiritual emperor, absorbed his office in his own. The Carnatic anchored at the quay near the Custom House, in the midst of a crowd of ships bearing the flags of all nations. Passepartout went timidly ashore on this so curious territory of the Sons of the Sun. He had nothing better to do than, taking chance for his guide, to wander aimlessly through the streets of Yokohama. He found himself at first in a thoroughly European quarter, the houses having low fronts and being adorned with verandas, beneath which he caught glimpses of neat peristyles. This quarter occupied, with its streets, squares, docks, and warehouses, all the space between the promontory of the treaty and the river. Here, as at Hong Kong and Calcutta, were mixed crowds of all races. Americans and English, Chinamen and Dutchmen, mostly merchants ready to buy or sell anything. The Frenchman felt himself as much alone among them as if he had dropped down in the midst of the Hottentots. He had at least one resource, to call on the French and English consuls at Yokohama for assistance. But he shrank from telling the story of his adventures, intimately connected as it was with that of his master, and before doing so, he determined to exhaust all other means of aid. As chance did not favor him in the European quarter, he penetrated that inhabited by the native Japanese, determined, if necessary, to push on to Yedo. The Japanese quarter of Yokohama is called Benton, after the goddess of the sea, who was worshipped on the islands round about. There, Passepartout beheld beautiful fir and cedar groves, sacred gates of a singular architecture, bridges half hid in the midst of bamboos and reeds, temples shaded by immense cedar trees, holy retreats where were sheltered Buddhist priests and sectaries of Confucius, and interminable streets where a perfect harvest of rose-tinted and red-cheeked children, who looked as if they had been cut out of Japanese screens, and were playing in the midst of short-legged poodles and yellowish cats, might have been gathered. The streets were crowded with people. Priests were passing in processions, beating their dreary tambourines. Police and custom house officers with pointed hats encrusted with lac and carrying two sabers hung to their waists. Soldiers clad in blue cotton with white stripes and bearing guns, the Mikado's guards, enveloped in silken doubles, hauberks and coats of mail, and numbers of military folk of all ranks, for the military procession is as much respected in Japan as it is despised in China. It went hither and thither in groups and pairs. Passepartout saw, too, begging friars, long-robed pilgrims and simple civilians, with their warped and jet-black hair, big heads, long busts, slender legs, short, short stature, and complexion, and complexions varying from copper color to a dead white, but never yellow, like the Chinese, from whom the Japanese widely differ. He did not fail to observe the curious equipages, carriages and palanquins, barrows supplied with sails and litters made of bamboo, nor the women, whom he thought not especially handsome, who took little steps with their little feet, 
whereon they wore canvas shoes, straw sandals, and clogs of worked wood, and who displayed tight-looking eyes, flat chests, teeth fashionably blackened, and gowns crossed with silken scarves, tied in an enormous knot behind an ornament which the Parisian ladies seemed to have borrowed from the dames of Japan. Passepartout wandered for several hours in the midst of this motley crowd, looking in at the windows of the rich and curious shops, the jewelry establishments glittering with quaint Japanese ornaments, the restaurants decked with streamers and banners, the tea houses, where the odorous beverages were being drunk with sake, a liquor concocted from the fermentation of rice, and the comfortable smoking houses, where they were puffing, not opium, which is almost unknown in Japan, but a very fine, stringy tobacco. He went on till he found himself in the fields, in the midst of vast rice plantations. There he saw dazzling camellias expanding themselves with flowers, which were giving forth their last colors and perfumes, not on bushes, but on trees, and within bamboo enclosures, cherry, plum, and apple trees which the Japanese cultivate rather for their blossoms than their fruit, and which queerly fashioned, grinning scarecrows protected from the sparrows, pigeons, ravens, and other voracious birds. On the branches of the cedars were perched large eagles. Amid the foliage of the weeping willows were herons, solemnly standing on one leg, and on every hand were crows, ducks, hawks, wild birds, and a multitude of cranes, which the Japanese consider sacred, and which to their minds symbolize long life and prosperity. As he was strolling along, Passepartout espied some violets among the shrubs. Good, said he, I'll have some supper. But on smelling them, he found that they were odorless. No chance there, he thought. The worthy fellow had certainly taken good care to eat as hearty a breakfast as possible before leaving the Carnatic, but as he had been walking about all day, the demands of hunger were becoming importunate. He observed that the butcher's stalls contained neither mutton, goat, nor pork, and knowing also that it is a sacrilege to kill cattle, which are preserved solely for farming, he made up his mind that meat was far from plentiful in Yokohama. Nor was he mistaken, and, in default of butcher's meat, he could have wished for a quarter of wild boar or deer, a partridge or some quails, some game or fish, which, with rice, the Japanese eat almost exclusively. But he found it necessary to keep up a stout heart, and to postpone the meal he craved till the following morning. Night came, and Passepartout re-entered the native quarter, where he wandered through the streets, lit by very-coloured lanterns. Looking on at the dancers who were executing skillful steps and boundings, and the astrologers who stood in the open air with their telescopes. Then he came to the harbor, which was lit up by the resin torches of the fishermen who were fishing from their boats. The streets at last became quiet, and the patrol, of which, in their splendid costumes and surrounded by their suites, Passepartout thought seemed like ambassadors, succeeded the bustling crowd. Each time a company passed, Passepartout chuckled and said to himself, Good, another Japanese embassy departing for Europe. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. 
it helps other people find and enjoy the show, too. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. Our show music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont from the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with the next part of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends. <laughs>